1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE.
2: I'm standing here at uh, Moore's Clocks in Mountain View, surrounded by, well, clocks. The walls are covered with clocks. There are grandfather clocks standing uh, all across the floor here. There are table model clocks behind me and some of those rotating ball clocks that uh, you can pick up in Europe uh, (laughs) in a big display case across from me. I've always liked clocks. I don't know if it's the mechanisms or simply the fact that they reflected the processes of life itself. Mr. Bohr, this is your clock store. You know, it's always noisy in this place. Uh, I I take it that doesn't bother you anymore. Yeah, well, the word
3: noise is not the right word. We just call it harmony here, (laughs) yes, but you're right. There's always sound in the store.
2: I find the sound of a clock very reassuring. I have one in my office. I never look at it. Uh, I'm not even sure it's set for the correct time, but the sound of the ticking is somehow, I find, very relaxing.
3: That that is true. When customers bring their clocks in for repair, it goes, how long is it going to be? You know, it could be two weeks, could be you know six weeks, and I go, what am I going to do without my clock? Because they live by their clocks. It's, it's not a theory, it's
2: the fact. I'm Seth Shostak, and in this hour of Are We Alone? Time. We're surrounded by it, ruled by it, we can't escape it. In this, the first of a two-part series on time, how do we keep track of it? From accurate scientific measurement to the world's most precise timekeeper to how every culture keeps time a little differently. I assume that all the clocks are set for different times so that they'll always be doing something for the customer's benefit.
3: Right. When customers come in here and they always go, what time is it? Because
2: they
4: don't know what time it is because there's not any clock on time to correct, except for this
3: atomic clock right here. (laughs) Otherwise, you're right. I even have to look at that besides my watch. But you're right. Nothing's on time in
4: here.
1: I'm Molly Bentley. Well, as Seth has discovered, a mechanical clock is one way of marking time but not all events have occurred, with a modern timekeeper on hand to record them. If there had been, we'd know exactly when the dinosaurs went extinct, for example.
2: That's the last one. Bob, did you catch that? Yep, it's Tuesday, March 7th. A last stegosaurus standing is down. 123 p.m. Got that.
1: Unfortunately, we don't have that kind of record-keeping. And yet scientists often work in intervals of time that stretch back thousands, even millions of years. So how do they keep track of events long ago? Well, it's an art as well as a science. And nature offers up many phenomena that help, such as decaying carbon, growing rings in trees, and providing a moon with easily visible phases. Bones, Rocks, and Stars is geologist Chris Turney's book about the science of when things happened.
5: Chris, if I handed you this rock... Could could you tell me how old it is? Uh, with a, a lot of money, yes, probably good, yes.
2: Well, how would you do that? It doesn't seem to have a plate on the bottom that says this rock formed in whatever.
5: No, that's true. That's true. It depends. If it's a volcanic rock, it's probably got quite a lot of potassium in it. And uh, over time, that potassium, a radioactive form of potassium, forms argon gas. And so what you get is when the lava forms, it solidifies uh, little gas bubbles start filling up with argon gas. And over time, you can measure how much argon gas is built up. And uh, you can back calculate to work out how old it is. Okay, you're talking about
2: argon gas. It sounds like you're finding clocks in the rocks. You're finding some sort of uh, natural clock in this rock that would uh, tell you how many times it's ticked since the rock was formed. That's right.
5: Absolutely. Yes, you can do that.
2: Now, dating an object is really a way of telling time. We just established that. And you write in your book that time is one of our greatest obsessions. Uh, I assume you're referring to more than just the fact that we don't like getting older. <laughs>
5: no, that's right. Well, we live by, it, don't we? I'm, I'm always running late, and uh, we're always running on meetings. We're always checking our clocks, timetables, and uh, and even then, we 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 still run late. We're just obsessed with it. And a lot of the time, though, when we're interested in what's happened in the past. We need time as some sort of framework to understand what's happened when, the rates of change. There's so much out there related to time. Now, do we
2: have any idea of who were the first to try and measure time, to turn it from something that we just sort of experience into something that we could uh, you know, quantify?
5: Well, there's, there's bones and there's uh, rocks which are several thousand years old, which appear to have markings on them. Indicating some sort of uh, timekeeping. We're not quite sure how old they are or whether they were truly a calendar. But certainly by the time you have the Babylonians, you've got something that we'd recognize as a calendar today.
2: That's uh, what, 3,500 years ago? That's more than that actually, isn't it? Yeah,
5: it's a wee bit more. It's about uh, five millennia ago. Yes. Okay, so we're
2: talking back, we're going back toward the the time when they built the first of the pyramids. Yeah,
5: just a wee bit before. And a lot of those ones there are very much based on uh lunar cycles this whole idea of the different phases of a moon so calendars were built around the different phases of a moon the problem is a moon um a moon goes the moon goes for its cycle uh for different phases in about 29 and a half days so you can't get a perfect calendar based around the different phases of the moon. So they're always playing catch up. You know, people may not understand. The reason we have leap
2: years, of course, is that the earth doesn't spin an integral number of times during the course of a year. You know, it's, maybe if we could speed up or slow down the earth, we could get rid of all that. <laughs> yes,
5: yeah, all by mucking about. The <laughs> Romans were a gorgeous example of that because they had, they had a calendar that was constantly falling behind the seasons. And so they had a group of priests who were charged with adding time. And these priests were known as the pontifices and they would add time just to keep the calendar in track of the seasons. But it was a bit of a black box. No one really knew how they did it. So it was ripe for abuse. These people would add dates or take dates off, depending on more money from a loan, keeping their mates in power longer. (laughs) So by the time Julius Caesar came into power, it was about 90 days behind the seasons. So he had to bring that forward. So he actually took advice, actually in Egypt and... uh, decided to add on 90 days, and the public were over the moon about that, because they thought their lives had been extended 90 days, and uh, also introduced the concept of a leap year. So it was actually thanks to Julius Caesar, and that's what gave birth to the Julian calendar. And and, and perhaps also our uh, reluctance
2: to think very highly of pontificators, I guess. (laughs) Yes,
5: that's true, actually.
2: (laughs) Well, there are all sorts of ways to determine the age of an object. Can you give me an overview of how scientists will decide what methods to use, because you've talked about potassium, argon. People have heard of carbon dating. Uh, There are other ways to tell how old things are. How do we decide which of nature's clocks we're going to invoke when we come across some, I don't know, archaeological object or a geological uh, formation? We want to know how old it is.
5: Yeah, that's a good question, actually. It really depends on the sort of material we've got and the sort of... Likely age that we're going to be looking at. So, if it's something that's very recent, you might use something like historical dating, maybe there's references in historical texts referring to a particular event. Tree rings. Tree rings. If we're really fortunate, we often you'll find um, beautiful chunks of wood or planks of wood that we can actually date from that. So, what the basis of uh, tree ring dating is: in most trees in mid latitudes, will put on an annual ring each year, and then depending on when the uh, it's a good growing year, they'll put on a nice, thick, juicy ring on the outside of a tree if it's a it's a horrible year where it's drought or it's just conditions are hard to grow, it'll put on virtually no ring at all or or actually there will be no ring. And uh, what you can do is you can go along, you can look at a cross-section of tree, I guess most of us have done that over time, and you can measure the thickness of these rings over time. And most trees living in that area of the same species will have a similar pattern of thick and thin rings. And so what you can do is you can take trees that are living today and you can measure their pattern of rings and then you can go back over time and find trees that were buried in bogs, rivers, or even in archaeological sites, you can measure the thickness of the rings and overlap the ring sequences. It's like one enormous jigsaw puzzle. Uh, In Europe, they can go back 7,468 in Northern Ireland. In Germany, they go back 12,410 years, absolutely to the year. So what you can do is later on, you can come along, you can find a piece of wood, and you can measure the thickness of rings. If you've got more than about 100 rings, you can overlap that sequence of rings onto this uh, master chronology from uh, nearby and you can get down to the year. That's fantastic. And, and, and there's, no, there's no
2: real assumption there that uh, you have to make, unlike other methods of dating, right? I mean, it's, yes, that's it's, right. It's
5: really an absolute dating scheme. It is an absolute dating scheme and it's just gorgeous. There was a great example actually from Roskilde in Denmark. And Roskilde's got this quite a deep fjord and they sank six Viking ships to stop other marauding Vikings coming in and attacking their little settlement. And these were discovered back in the 1960s. And most of the Viking ships could be dated quite well by using the trimming patterns. But one ship didn't fit in at all, didn't match any of the local chronologies from northern Germany or Denmark. And one of the archaeologists remarked upon the fact that actually one of them had sort of an Irish element, of course there were Viking settlements in Ireland at the time, and they sent samples over to Professor Mike Bailey at Queen's University in Belfast, and he matched retrieving patterns against that ship that had been found and found it matched perfectly around Dublin, so we could actually tell the ship was made in Dublin.
2: Let's talk a little bit about carbon dating mm. because it reminds me high school when I dated a young woman named Briquette. The car- <laughs> carbon, carbon dating... Many people have heard of that, and we use that for dating things. Well, for example, famously, the Shroud of Turin. That's
5: right, yes. Reputedly,
2: something that held the body of Christ. But, of course, some people are skeptical. How does carbon dating figure in that?
5: Mm, Well, carbon dating is a wonderful example. Again, making that decision on what sort of material you want to date or how far back you want to date, carbon dating really is anything that's lived Pretty much anything that's lived over up to the last sixty thousand years. So, if you want to date a piece of coal that's millions of years old, you wouldn't use carbon dating. Right. And the reason for that is the fact that radioactive form of carbon or C fourteen forms in the upper atmosphere, and it gets mixed up with uh, oxygen to form carbon dioxide, and the carbon dioxide is then taken up by plants. The bottom line is that those plants through photosynthesis. Uh, fix that carbon, that radioactive form of carbon, is the atmosphere. And if animals come along and eat those plants, that radioactive carbon goes all the way through the living system. That's fine, while you're alive, you're fixing that carbon, the radioactive carbon. But when you die, or that organic organism dies, that radioactive carbon starts to decay, disintegrates, disappears. And this is where we use this concept of a half-life, which is the time it takes for half the amount of a radioactive isotope to disappear. So radioactive carbon is about five and a half thousand years, just a wee bit more. So you can go to an archaeological site or a geological section. You can take out wood, charcoal, shells, bones, anything like that. You can measure how much radioactive carbon is left in those remains. You know how much there would have been when it was alive, and so you can back calculate an age.
2: So that tells you how long it's been since that plant stopped taking in carbon dioxide. That's since right. the plant that that wood came from died. Exactly. And... and- Suppose we're talking about something twenty, thirty thousand 30,000 years old. What sort of accuracy do you get with this?
5: Oh, if you get back to about 30,000 years, you could probably get within three or 400 years. All right. Well, that'd be good enough for the Shroud of Turin. Oh, but... well, the Shroud of Turin, well, <laughs> this is where you get this wonderful concept of a believer, but... Um... The Shroud of Turin was this fantastic object that's known about in uh, northern Italy. It's been known about since, oh, the 13th century. It was supposedly found within the belongings of a French knight called Geoffrey de Charny, who wrote the only book on chivalry at the time. And uh, when he died during the Hundred Years' War against the English, his widow, desperate for cash, went amongst his belongings and found this fantastic shroud, which he then put on display, and over the years it eventually ended up in Turin. And there's been a lot of debate over the years about how old this thing is. So the question was, could you date it? And in the old days, using carbon dating, you'd have probably had to destroy most of it to get enough radioactive carbon. But with the advent of new techniques in the 1970s, you can take milligrams of carbon and you can measure how much radioactive carbon is left in that. And three different labs got involved from Europe and America, and they all came out with exactly the same age in the 1300s which basically is smack on when we knew the first historical references to the Shroud was. So <laughs> it looks like Geoffrey de wasn't as chivalrous as we thought. A hoax. A hoax. That's that's crazy talk. <laughs> I, I, I have to say. Scandalous. I'm, uh, yes.
2: <laughs> I'm talking with Chris Turney, a geologist at Exeter University, about dating. Chris, we've been talking about radiocarbon dating, but you know that's not the kind that we would use, for example, to date some dinosaur bones. And the reason that you can't use carbon dating for things
5: that are older than, you know, 50,000, 60,000 years is... The reason is because you have this half-life of about 5,500 years, after about eight half-lives, there's virtually nothing left. So every 5,500 years, half the amount of that radioactive carbon has disappeared. So after another 5,500 years, you've only got 25% or a quarter left and so on. And so after about eight, nine, 10 half-lives, you've really got such a small amount... But you're in background, basically. But of course, the beautiful thing is, because of that, you can go along and you can try and date a piece of coal, and there's just trace amounts of radioactive carbon left on it. So you get an age of 60,000, but it doesn't mean the coal's 60,000. <laughs> <laughs> Everything... That does confuse some people, It <laughs> <Well>, seems to. <laughs>
2: Everything happened 60,000 years
5: ago. We'll, we'll, we'll get back to that.
2: So radioactive carbon dating isn't good enough for things like dinosaur bones, which might be 100 million years old. How, how do we date those?
5: The bottom line is it's very hard to date the bone itself. And certainly once you get back 65 million years or more, very few remains have been found, dinosaur remains, that actually are really bone anymore. They've been actually turned into stone. So the question is how do you date them? And usually what you do is you have to date them by association, things which are found associated with those bones. Maybe the bones are found between particular layers which you can then date. And one of the best things for doing that is dating things like if you've got volcanic layers in between old lava layers, things like that, where you can go along and you can measure how much a radioactive material is in those rocks. But it's not carbon-14. No, it's not carbon-14. Using different radioactive uh, elements in those cases, things such as radioactive potassium, which forms into argon. And
2: what's the half-life of radioactive
5: potassium? It was about uh, 1.3 billion years, actually, for radioactive uh, potassium. And that forms argon gas. So every 1.3 billion years, half the amount of radioactive potassium has disappeared.
2: So if you're talking about a dinosaur bone, which might be indeed 65 to 150 million years old, very little of the potassium actually decayed.
5: That's right, yes, but more than enough is built up that you can actually start measuring. So it really works. Yeah, so it's one of those things, it just goes to show, it depends, what's sort the of material you're looking at and what's sort the of, uh, age range you're looking for? Because, of course, you do find, as we've talked about before, coal, it's got, it's got carbon in it. You might think, oh, that would be great for radiative carbon but of course it's it's too old so it's at time range and it's also the actual material you want to date well finally the biggie the biggie in terms of
2: dating and that would be the age of the earth because this has af- after all cultural and scientific repercussions how do we tell how old the earth is because uh, once again you know nobody's found a, a brass plate that says earth fabricated and, you know, and some, <laughs> some date on the
5: end. Well, some people almost did believe that, actually. Some of the early Christian scholars actually believed you could use a religious texts to get an age. And probably the most famous one, who was a fantastic historian, was a poor chap who gets chastised publicly all the time now. The Bishop Usher of Armagh in Northern Ireland. And he was a fantastic historian. And he basically took the book of Genesis and measured the length of time that everyone was supposedly alive and linked that to a historical date for sacking of Jerusalem by the Babylonian kings. And so worked out from that that the earth was created around 4,000 BC.
2: So it's 6,000 years old. 6,000 years old. Yeah. But
5: Asher had this wonderful thing that he also wanted to work out the precise day of the year. It was actually 4,004 BC he came up with, and he wanted to work out the exact day, uh, because the Bible, uh, Genesis, doesn't actually say X date. So he had to try and calculate it another way and and of course it talks about the garden of eden having fruits on the trees so if it was the northern hemisphere it must have been around the autumnal equinox around september the 21st so he came up with the date of september 21st but he didn't because he was a protestant he didn't believe in this papist conspiracy for the Gregorian calendar. <laughs> so he corrected the date. So he actually came up with October the 23rd, 4004 BC. Was well, that a Tuesday? When did when, when the <laughs> earth was formed? I can't remember precisely what day he came up with. It was either Tuesday or Wednesday. <laughs> well, now, it, it be, but this
2: has become an important thing because there are, after all, you know, fundamentalists who take a literal interpretation of the Bible and so forth who think that the earth is only 6,000 years old. And I assume that comes from... Uh, Usher's Reckoning?
5: That's right, yes, exactly. But, of course, they're using a Julian calendar straight away because they, they're taking his date of October the 23rd <laughs> rather than the Gregorian calendar. <laughs> well, Chris Turney, lamentably, our time is up. But then, <laughs> Thank you,
2: Seth. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. <laughs> thanks, Seth.
1: Chris Turney is a geologist at the University of Wollongong, Australia and the author of Bones, Rocks, and Stars, The Science of When Things Happen.
2: Hey, I really like the way you shed that carbon 14. So I was thinking maybe you and I could go get a bite. There's a little isotope joint down the street. Yeah, I got it. Radiocarbon dating sounds like a real catch. Next, a history of modern timekeepers and how to build a better atomic clock. It's Are We Alone?
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe.
1: Welcome back to our show about time. You know, Seth, many people doing a show about time like this would resort to a whole medley of songs about time.
2: Yeah, right. It's a bit hackneyed, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the sort of thing that ticks away at my sanity.
1: No, it's true. It's hard to believe that such a calamity can keep us from slipping, slipping. Into the
2: future. My thoughts exactly, Molly. But, you know, if I could save time in a bottle.
1: Well, the first thing I'd do is buy me a ticket on the last train.
2: And go home tonight. Me too. Was that a sigh? Molly, you must remember this, a a sigh is just a sigh. The fundamental things still apply, okay, which in this case is beginning of time, or at least of timekeeping
1: and the invention of the first clock. Humans have been parsing their days into hours and minutes for thousands of years. But when exactly did this all begin? Seth turned to venerable U.S. Naval Observatory in Washington, D.C., whose mission has been to keep time since 1845. And that year, they began dropping a ball on the roof of the observatory every day at noon, so residents of Washington could set their clocks. And today, Demetrios Masakis, head of the Naval Observatory's time service, continues to keep things ticking.
2: Demetrios, I suppose the necessity for keeping time goes back to, well, time immemorial. But what was the first clock that we know about?
6: Well, you're absolutely right. It goes back to before historic time, before things were written. So all the information we get on the first clocks come from archaeological things. It doubtless was sundials, and maybe the fanciest sundials, if you want to call it that, would be Stonehenge.
2: Okay, but that's more in the nature of a calendar, really, than a clock, isn't it?
6: That's right. I don't think Stonehenge was actually used to say, is it 2 o'clock now? Although, to actually start their ceremonies, they may well have wanted to know the exact time of the solstice or the equinox. And it may have actually been used to hone in on the exact instant as well.
2: How accurate would a sundial have been then?
6: Well, sundials can be as accurate as you make them. The Egyptian sundial divided the day into 12 hours. It didn't matter if it was winter when the days were short, it still had 12 hours, or if it was summer when the days were long. We know now that the most accurate sundial you could make can be off by as much as 16 minutes, depending on the time of year. And that's because the Earth does not go in a circle around the sun, it goes in an ellipse around the
2: sun. You mentioned that the Egyptians had a 12-hour day, and when you say day, in this case, you mean 12 hours worth of sunlight, and that already suggests that, well, in a day, as we reckon a day now, would have 24 hours per day. Where did that come from, that number 24? Why wasn't it 10 hours per day or, or 100 hours per day?
6: The 12 hours from the Egyptian calendar is the earliest record that we know of it.
2: So they just they just decided. I mean, there was no particular reason.
6: Well, we could infer what we want. In the French Revolution, they decided to make it 10 hours to the day because we had a decimal system. It might have been related to their rituals. What time does a pharaoh wake up? What time does he eat lunch? So you have to have a division that way.
2: Demetrius, surely by the time of the classical Greeks, or at least the Romans, they had something better than sundials?
6: Oh, sure. Things were well advanced. We'd gone into the water clock regime. Plato, the philosopher, actually invented a water clock that was designed so you set it up, it would fill up after three hours, and all the little balls that were floating on it would be tipped over and hit a gong and wake people up. There were water clocks all over, there were candle clocks. You'd burn a candle, and how far down does it go? That's a measure of time. We found some of those, too.
2: Well, okay. Uh, Candles, water clocks, sundials. Sometimes I think my uh, dinner date companions have sundials, judging by how punctual they are. (laughs) When was the first improvement on these classical timekeeping devices? When did we get something better?
6: Spring-loaded clocks came about at, at the time of the Renaissance, 1430. Maybe even that predates the Renaissance. It came in the West. Galileo, famous for the astronomer stuff, invented the concept of a pendulum clock. And so in the 1400s and the 1500s, that was the first great innovation in timekeeping where we left. where We started getting into the mechanical age, and from then it just took over
2: those pendulum clocks that Galileo invented. Now, in principle, a a pendulum swing back and forth only depends on on its length. So any pendulum, I suppose, would keep accurate time. But I assume that a bigger pendulum would be better simply because there might be fewer frictional losses and so forth. Is is that why people build grandfather clocks? Why, Why do they have those big pendulums?
6: Because air resistance counts less, but you also want to look at the time between your windings. You don't want to have to wind it up all the time on that. Big Ben is an example of a very big clock, a very big pendulum clock.
2: What about watches, Demetrius, a, a, a timepiece you could actually carry around? I mean, we take that for granted now, but of course we shouldn't. I mean, in the old days, I assumed that the only way you could know the time was to look at some big tower in the center of town that might have a clock on it, or, or at least hear it's tolling bell. When, when did they invent clocks you could carry around?
6: I'd say it, was, it started from the Harrison chronometer. Harrison was in England. There was a prize offered throughout most of the 1700s. It was actually King George III that finished it, that finished the contest to make a clock accurate enough to sail at sea. They started with pendulum clocks. Harrison made them better and better. And he ended up having something which was really looked like a very large pocket watch. And from there, watches got smaller still based on those principles.
2: So there was no pendulum in Harrison's clock eventually, right? I mean, it was some That's sort right. of this a... right. He
6: started with a pendulum and he ended up with a pocket watch. That's what I tell people. He actually went to a double pendulum first where you had two pendulums swinging against each other to compensate for each other when you were on a ship rolling in the waves at sea.
2: What was the next big step in timekeeping after these mechanical clocks of the 18th and 19th century?
6: The discovery of quartz. The quartz itself would be an oscillator, and you could count the oscillations of quartz. The first quartz clock was in 1927. In the 1930s and 40s, they sort of took over, became better and better. And In the 50s, people started buying quartz clocks uh, wristwatches. That was the in thing back then, at least for the geeks.
2: Well, finally, Demetrius... We've always used astronomy to regulate our clocks. I mean, you're with the timekeeping service of the U.S. Naval Observatory, which right away gives you some inkling of the connection between astronomy and timekeeping. The ultimate clock was always the Earth, how long it took the Earth to spin once. But are our best clocks today better than our astronomy? I mean, are we still using astronomy to keep time? Or are we using timekeeping to, you know, learn things in astronomy?
6: You're right. We are no longer using astronomy to tell time. The atomic clocks were the first clocks that were reliably more accurate than the Earth. The Earth actually is a very unstable clock as judged by an atomic clock. It has seasonal effects between summer and winter. It also changes from day to day, and it has a long-term slowdown. All of those things were measured when atomic clocks came of age, around 1970, 1971, were when the official changes were made, and we went to atomic time, and that's when the world abandoned Greenwich Mean Time. A lot of people think Greenwich Mean Time still exists. It doesn't. It's now universal time, which is computed from atomic clocks.
2: I understand you're putting in a new clock at the U.S. Naval Observatory now. Can you tell me how accurate is that new clock? It's accurate enough that it would lose one second in 30 million years. (laughs) Okay. That sounds good enough for most of my appointments. Demetrios Matsakis, thank you so much for talking with me and taking the time to do so. You're welcome.
1: Demetrios Matsakis is the head of the Time Service Department at the U.S. Naval Observatory in D.C. You know, Seth, Demetrios began by talking about sundials. And did you know that when those first sundials were invented... Roman citizens complained that they were parsing up their lives too much. Is that really true? Yeah, it is true. I guess we've been griping about the tyranny of time for a long, long time.
2: That's really interesting. Well, Demetrius ended by talking about atomic clocks, and I think he said the atomic clock at the observatory is accurate to one second in 30 million years. That's right. Well, if you can believe it, the phenomenal accuracy of that has been improved. At the National Institute of Standards and Technology in Boulder, Colorado, they've created an atomic clock that is even more accurate. The Naval Observatory keeps time, but the National Institute defines what a second is, how long it is, and they also develop new technologies for measuring time. Now, their current front runner in the accuracy department is an atomic clock based on cesium atoms, but they have something new, a so called optical clock that ticks thanks to strontium atoms trapped in laser light.
1: And these super-accurate clocks are not only important for keeping us on time, but for testing the laws of the universe.
2: So the Naval Observatory has clocks accurate to one second in 30 million years. I'll ask NIST physicist Steve Jeffords, can you see that 30 million and raise us any?
3: We are talking accuracies of one second in a 100 million or a few hundred million years if they could run that long. So, I, you know, it's a, it's a sort of a crazy idea. We'll all be long since gone before they gain or lose a perceptible amount of time.
2: The way these clocks work, I mean, there obviously there are no gears and, you know, escape mechanisms and things like that, the kind of things you'd find in a traditional clock. How do they work? How, how do you keep time with atoms?
3: Maybe I can start by saying why we use atoms, because it's sort of important in how you do it. And the idea is, is that all atoms of a particular variety, say cesium or hydrogen or something, all hydrogen atoms are indistinguishable from each other. There's sort of a, you can interchange them. And that means that if I build a, a clock based on, for example, hydrogen, and you build a clock based on hydrogen, we ought to get the same answer for the rate of time, you know, how fast the clock takes. So the second piece of that is how do you use an atom to make a clock? And all atoms have, by the rules of quantum mechanics, they've got discrete energy levels. And to change the atom from one energy level to another, I have to shine exactly the right frequency of electromagnetic radiation, whether it's a microwave radiation or an optical radiation, on the atom to make it switch to this other state.
2: Well, it sounds to me like what you're saying is that People have this idea of an atom, is, you know, there's this little nucleus in the center and then there's this big cloud of electrons that are orbiting around it. And what you're doing is you're causing some of those electrons or one of those electrons to jump up to a, a bigger orbit and back down to a smaller orbit, back up to a bigger orbit. In other words, th- these jumping electrons are the tick-tocks of the clock.
3: That's a perfectly reasonable way to look at it. And in fact, that's a effectively exactly correct for an optical clock. For a microwave clock, instead of the, the electron jumping from one orbit to another, it's, in fact, turning the electron upside down and then right side up and then upside down and then right side up because it turns out which direction the electron is put in the orbit is also important.
2: Mechanical clocks, you know, have a little mechanical thing that goes back and forth. It's called an escapement, and they'll do that maybe once a second. How often do these, these atoms tick in these atomic
3: clocks? In the cesium clocks, which are the traditional, if you will, atomic clock standards for the definition of the second, the ticking rate is by definition 9,192,631,770 times in one second. So if you count 9 billion and change cycles, you have by definition one second in our system of units. In an optical clock, that frequency is a million times higher than that or maybe 100,000 times higher than that. And so it ticks 100,000 times more quickly than a cesium clock, which is why they have the potential for being so much more accurate.
2: Why do we need clocks this accurately? I mean, nobody's going to care if you're a, a, a trillionth of a trillionth of a second late for an appointment. What's the point?
3: What has always happened when people build better and better atomic clocks and I should say that these clocks get better by about a factor of 10 every 10 years and that rule of thumb has held up since oh 1950 or so when people started building atomic clocks every time we build a better clock someone comes along and figures out a use for it that's not a great answer for why we would need them today part of the reason we need them today has to do with measuring very short times more accurately, which makes putting, for example, huge amounts of data down, optical fibers and things like that, at least arguably more doable. The other thing we tend to use them for these days is turning around the use of the clock and saying what we're going to do is measure how fast, for example, a cesium clock ticks relative to a clock based on ytterbium, let's say. And we're gonna measure that ratio with exquisite accuracy today. And we're gonna wait a year and we're gonna measure it again. And if we understand the laws of the universe, that ratio better not change because we have this idea that the laws of physics don't change with time, they're just set. But you know, that's, a, that's an assumption. And an awful lot of what we do with these clocks these days is try to test these sorts of fundamental physical ideas we have about how the universe works. The other thing we use them for is to test relativity.
2: Well, one of the very old predictions of relativity from 1905, I guess it is, special relativity, says that, you know, when I get in my car to drive home tonight, I'm going to age a little less quickly than if I just stayed in my chair back here at the office. (laughs) Uh, Mind you, going at, uh, you know, 40 miles an hour, I suppose that difference is probably, you know, less than a trillionth of a second. So (laughs) I probably won't notice it when I look in the mirror. But do we have clocks that are accurate enough? You know, build two of these guys, put one in the office, another in my car. Would I see the difference after I made my trip home?
3: You should now. I'm 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 trying to do the arithmetic in my head to decide how fast you'd really have to be going for how long to tell. Well,
2: but they do do experiments like this, right? Where oh, they put... absolutely, okay.
3: absolutely. In fact, you know, the international definition of the second is to, is in terms of the cesium atom, as I said, and it's defined at something we call the reference geoid, which, in hand waving terms, is mean sea level on the earth. But in the United States, our national standard is in Boulder, which is some 2,000 meters above sea level. And that is a huge shift in the clock frequency for the, not the special relativity effect you just mentioned, but for a general relativity effect, which which says that the further you go away from a gravitational source like the Earth, the faster your clock runs. So, in fact, the clock in Boulder runs some two parts in 10 to the 13 faster than it would if it were at sea level where it belongs. So we have to correct the frequency of it to pretend it's at sea level.
2: Well, I'm gratified, Stephen, that for every second that I age, uh, the people in Boulder and Denver are aging a fifth of a trillionth of a second faster. Makes me, <laughs> makes, me, makes me feel better. I'm speaking with Steve Jeffords, a physicist at the National Institute of Standards and Technology in Boulder. Looking to the future, Steve, do you see any limit to how accurately we could, or how accurate a clock we could make? I mean, is this? You say it's getting ten times better every decade. How how much longer is that going to continue?
3: I would argue we are quickly approaching some sort of fundamental limits, and and the limits have to do with the way we traditionally look at the universe. You and I look at the universe as having position and time as completely separate things, right? I'm on the corner of Broadway and Baseline and that's my position and it happens to be 3.30 in the afternoon and that's my time and they're not connected. But in fact, in the Einsteinian view, it's it's space time, it's a, it's a full coordinate system. And I think we're quickly getting to the point on the surface of the Earth where clocks are going to be measuring space-time rather than just time. And so I think it's becoming an instrument which it's, a, it's no longer a clock, it's a space-time meter of some sort.
2: I think I'll short my shares in the atomic <laughs> clock industry. If we're right. getting to the end. There's actually, a, which brings to mind the idea that the some some organization known as the Long Now Foundation has to build a mechanical clock that will keep on ticking after taking a presumed
3: licking, for, <laughs> yes.
2: for 10,000 years. Do you know about this clock?
3: Yeah, I've, I've read articles about it. I've never seen it either.
2: Yeah, well, that, that would be something, because I guess their point is that we never build anything that's designed to last for 10,000 years. I mean, the pyramids have lasted for 5,000, but, you know, not, not in great shape. But right. They wanted to build a, and they wanted to build a clock. I think that's remarkable. That's what they wanted to build. Finally, Steve, when you go to uh, cocktail parties or any other kind of party, do people ever sort of uh, ask you, uh, by the way, what time is it?
3: Uh, yeah, we get that quite often, and you know, usually my wife just starts laughing because I tend to be late for just about everything. So.
2: <laughs> oh, Steve Jeffords, thanks for taking the time to talk with me.
3: Thank you.
1: Steve Jeffords is a physicist at the National Institute of Standards and Technology in Boulder, Colorado, and now someone with some time on his hands and on his
2: mind. Time defies easy description. Einstein tells us that it's no more mysterious than the dimensions of space, no different than up, down, and sideways, but there's something different about time, at least as we experience it. We can stand still in space, but not in time. Measuring the dimensions of space is easy. Anyone can use a stick or even an arm or a foot to pace out distances, but measuring time has never been easy. When I was very young, I had an aunt who would give me old clocks to take apart. I became quite good at this, although I was less successful at putting them back together. But I remember marveling at the escape mechanisms of these clocks, the little ratchet wheel, the spring and forked lever that were the heart of mechanical timekeeping. How amazing that this very simple assembly was able to dissect one of the most puzzling phenomena of the universe. By the time I was in high school, my bedroom sported four or five clocks, all ticking away. It was a reassuring sound. And I might add a sound seldom heard today. Most watches and clocks now keep time by counting the cycles of current fed to them by the electric company or by relying on the subtle vibrations of a quartz crystal. The old tick-tock is gone. Today, we can keep time to one part in a thousand trillion, a feat that allows us to have GPS devices, to check Einstein's theories, and to measure what's happening in the cores of distant galaxies. Time, in other words, has marched on. The writer, George Eliot, claimed she had measured out her life with coffee spoons. For me, it was measured by the gentle, reassuring ticks of mechanical clocks. They were only brass and steel, but I do miss them.
1: Up next, why time is relative to the culture you live in. It's Are We Alone.
2: Time is relative to culture. Looks like it might rain, Slim. You're right there, Festus. We should call the dogs in. Hey, hey, you two. Your sign says you fixed cars. My car's got a burned out lug nut and I gotta be in a meeting in LA. Gotta be there yesterday. Can you fix it? Well, I think we can, just as soon as Tex rounds the bend there. When's that? Right after the cattle finish grazing in the south pasture. What? Listen, a big deal's going down in LA and I gotta be there the day before yesterday. Just give me a lug nut and I'll hit the road. Yep. As soon as those, uh, ranch hands get that fence post out of there. Right, Slim? That's right. What plan are you guys on? Don't you hear me? I gotta ink this deal. I gotta be in LA and I gotta be there two weeks ago. Not snap to it. We will, mister. I know, I know. When the crickets come a-calling and the ladybugs grow knee-high to a cactus plant, right? I'm saying, we'll get to it. But you gotta wait in line. What? There's no one else here. Minnie'll be on the road with her four-wheel. Soon as she strings the cat gut and her pumpkin bread cools. mm mm-hmm, mm Minnie's pumpkin bread. Now, now that's a tree... Ah, forget about it. I'm out of here. <laughs> hey, Festus, we gotta go. Oh, that's right. Hey, we got a Western Rancher's video conference call in 17 seconds, according to my radio regulated Atomic Watch.
1: Well, we take our perception of time for granted, and we're surprised to find that others mark the events in their lives a little bit differently than we do. Each culture keeps time its own way, says psychologist Robert Levine in his book, A Geography
2: of Time. Bob, there's something called a New York minute, and it's pretty short. But that wouldn't mean much to a guy in Rio de Janeiro, would it?
4: I think it's more than just a question of fast and slow, Uh, although obviously uh, people are going to move more quickly in New York City than they will in Rio de Janeiro. But I think the the differences strike a much more fundamental level. I think the biggest difference in timekeeping is whether one keeps time by the clock or what we see more often in Brazil and in, in many parts of the world is what we might call event time where people begin and end events when, well, when the time seems right.
2: Can you give me an example of that?
4: Certainly, we all live, even the most clock-driven type A person lives often on event time. Say you go to a party and uh, you're talking to somebody, you see somebody you wanna talk to on the other side of the room, do you go up to them and say, well, listen, uh, I'm gonna pencil you in for a conversation from 8.14 until 8.21? No, when do you begin talking? You begin when, by some mutual consensus, it seems time to start talking. And how long does the conversation go on? Well, when it seems like it's time to stop, then by mutual consensus, it's going to stop.
2: Well, so if I go to Rio and I want to have lunch with somebody and I call them up on the phone and I say, all right, I'll meet you for lunch at this restaurant at... Noon? Do I say at noon, or do I say, you know, whenever you think, like, it's, a, it's the right time for lunch? I mean, wait, you know, how, does, how does that work?
4: Well, you can, you can say noon if you want. I mean, if it makes you feel better. Uh, <laughs> but what you, what you find in Brazil, since people are operating on event time, is that they not only appear late, but they treat lateness completely differently. I spent a year in Brazil, and this is where I first started thinking about time. Uh, what you find is that somebody might not show up. Somebody might, might be 15 minutes late, a half hour late, or not show up, and then you see them after a while. And there's usually not the kind of apology that we're used to. Uh, the apology is more in the form of, well, something else came up. And uh, and it's, it's a whole different, just a whole different way of looking at things.
2: So if it were a Brazilian waiting, well, how long would he wait?
4: The Brazilian would wait uh, considerably longer than the American, but what's even more interesting is what the Brazilian would do. The Brazilian wouldn't necessarily be aggravated about it. The Brazilian would be prepared for somebody coming late. The Brazilian might move into over, if it was a lunch, over to one of the tables to talk to somebody. The Brazilian might even go away and then come back again.
2: All right. Well, we've talked about a slow culture. Let's talk about a fast one. Speaking of a New York minute, of course, we never talk about a Stockholm minute. But in fact, you've done some experiments that show that the pace of life is actually faster in Sweden than it is in New York. First off, how do you even measure that?
4: Uh, How does one measure the pace of life uh, without being allowed to make surgical implants in people? Well, what we do is look at indicators of the pace of life. Uh, We've done studies where we've looked at the pace of life in different cities across the United States and around the world, and we'll do things like look at average walking speed. We'll look at at an example of work speed, and we look at accuracy of clock time. We look at talking speed in some cases. So we're just getting a certain aspect of the pace of life when we're looking at it. Back to your example of Sweden. Sweden, we found, and most of the countries of Western Europe were, in fact, very fast, and most of them were faster, in fact, than, than what we found for uh, New York City. Uh, it was always big cities.
2: Well, so, so what you're saying is that the U.S., despite the New Yorkers, isn't a very fast-paced culture.
4: Well, we did find, when we look at average walking speed in midtown Manhattan compared to average walking speed in Stockholm, Sweden, for example, that on average people walk more slowly during the, during the work hours than they do in Sweden.
2: When I look at the examples in your book, I see that you have a listing of how fast various countries apparently live their lives. The Western Europeans seem to be the fastest. Japan is in there, too. Then comes the United States and so forth. But then you get you know, into uh, countries in Africa and so forth that are, that are clearly slower. Does the speed of our cultures divide up neatly in terms of geography like this, really?
4: Hmm. We've tried to identify predictors of the pace of life. If you believe, as I do, that places have personalities then those personalities have, have traits. So one of the things, for example, we can look at is climate. And what we find is, as you might predict, that hot weather places are more likely people walk more slowly. So in Brazil, people walk slowly. In, uh, in the Western European countries, especially the northern ones, people tend to walk
2: more quickly. What, what, what about in Africa? Are they just more languorous and they're getting about? Is there some other measure of uh, the slower pace of life there?
4: It's quite clear of the countries that we measured in Africa that people have a a slower pace of life. But again, what what I would emphasize is that it's a completely different way of looking at time, which you'll hear in Africa quite often when somebody, if you have an appointment with somebody and somebody is late for the appointment and you'll go searching frantically to see where is that person, the response that you'll get back is sometimes like, don't worry, he'll get there eventually.
2: Uh, one of the tests you did in your book is to go into a post office in these various countries and you mm-hmm. just asked to buy a stamp yeah. yeah tell me what that was like in some of these countries i mean some some countries that were different
4: well i 'll tell, tell you my favorite was when I went to the main post office in New york city and i and i asked i gave a five dollar bill and I asked to buy one whatever it was at the time thirty three cent stamp and uh, the clerk behind the counter she looks at me and and she announces in this really loud voice, you mean to tell me that you want to buy one 33 cent stamp? And by this point, she's shouting to the whole place. And you give me a $5 bill? And uh, I think, again, this is an example of uh, the difference between not just fast and slow, but there's a whole different attitude
2: toward time. What does what, what, what the rudeness of the post office clerk in New York have to do with time?
4: Well, now, now we can ask the question of what, is, of what is the value of time. Uh, if somebody puts a very high value on time, then if I waste your time, then I'm going to get angry at you. In fact, what we uh, we did a whole other series of studies where we looked at the pace of life of places, and then we went out and did studies on looking at uh, the likelihood that somebody would reach out to a stranger with the notion that if you have a slower pace of life, you're going to be more likely to reach out to a stranger. And, and we found mixed results.
2: All right. Now, in all your travels, Bob, of studying time— even though you were there to, to study these cultures, did you ever find uh, a conflict with your own sense of time? I mean, did you ever find yourself getting impatient by the meandering pace of some of these
4: other cultures? I found myself getting impatient, even though I had primed myself always when I go to another country to, uh, to try to suspend my assumptions and, and my values and just observe what's there. But nonetheless, it was very hard. It was very difficult for me when people were crossing my sense of time especially when I felt like they were undervaluing my sense of time. It, it can get to be very personal when one feels that one's time is being wasted or when another individual is giving you the message that their time or somebody else's time is worth more than your time.
2: Can you give me a brief example of that?
4: So, yeah, yeah. When I was, uh, when I was in, in Brazil, I was looking for an apartment, and uh, I went to see a landlord, I made an appointment, and I asked the person, is this, is this the right time? You know, is this okay? And I get there, and she says to me immediately, well, the guy is running late. The, the secretary tells me that this, the landlord is running late. And so I did what I often do in the United States. I said, well, okay, that's okay. I understand, uh, but I have some errands to do. How about if I come back in 15 minutes? And she looks at me like, like she did not know what I'm doing. I come back in 15 minutes, and the, the woman tells me the landlord is gone. And uh, I was really angry, and I get very angry, and she says, Mr. Levine, you're a very rude man. And, and it turns out that I was told by my cultural broker that, yeah, this guy, I, I needed this guy. He was in the position of power here, the position of status, and that I should have respected that, and I should have waited all that time. So I was angry at him, he was angry at me, and, the, and that, I think, is just a, a mini-story of why we have culture clashes.
2: Well, finally, Bob, uh, you know, you, you've taken a snapshot of various cultures' sense of time as it is today, but maybe time is speeding up in any culture. I'm thinking of, uh, you know, the mid-19th uh, century when the railroads kind of enforced the institution of time zones. There weren't time zones or standard times around the country. Is, is life speeding up for all cultures the way it has been in the United States?
4: It is, it is in, uh, um, at different rates and different, and different ways. You know, you talk about the railroads, I mean, if you think before the railroads, the fastest speed that a message could could travel was the speed of a horse. So, uh, you know, you don't need a social psychologist to talk about life speeding up since then. If uh, you look at some countries like the United States, we find that we're increasingly valuing every every moment. And uh, the idea of wasted time can now pertain to very, very small parts of time. What we see, if we look at some of the so-called third-world nations, is that people are moving more toward clock time, and uh, they're having to learn how to live on clock time with some of the consequences of that, for good and for bad. Certainly the world is uh, is moving toward a faster pace.
2: All right. Well, Bob Levine, I want to thank you for being with us, and I think I'm going to take a a long lunch. (laughs) Thanks very much. (laughs) You're welcome.
1: Robert Levine is a psychologist at California State University in Fresno and the author of A Geography of Time.
2: And yes, you guessed it, we're out of time. But there's more to come. In part two of our two-part series on time, Warping Time, Next week.
1: Meanwhile, thank you to Barbara Vance and Gary
2: Niederhoff for their help with the program. Also, the NASA Astrobiology Institute. And the SETI Institute, whose mission is to understand life on this planet, the possibility of it elsewhere, and, well, that includes understanding the subtleties of nature's physics. Whoops, look at that. Gotta run. Ooh, me too. Well, Slim, I don't know about you, but I'm not moving.
3: Until we can't tell where the starlight ends... And the fireflies begin.
2: No, you're right about that.
0: The world is constantly changing and transforming.